And the goodness of that is that uh, you don't miss anything. You don't miss anything if you do it long enough. Um, the difficulty of that is you get to challenging the sections of the Bible that you have to deal with. Because um, if we got to the end of chapter 4 and I looked at chapter 5 this week and I was like, oh, that's kind of awkward. Let's just move on. You would get here today and you're like, what about chapter 5, you know? And uh, I think chapter 5 is definitely one of those chapters that we get to when we're reading 1 Corinthians and all of a sudden we're like, you know, let's just go to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind, you know? And we want to land there. Um, but this morning, guys, uh, chapter 5 is so important for us. It's a very crucial topic, and it really deeply rubs against our comfort levels. Um, it's a topic that, quite honestly, we don't have much of a category for anymore in our modern times, and for various reasons. Uh, but if we fail to receive uh, what this passage has to say to us, it will be extremely devastating for you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is a classic passage about church discipline. Church discipline. I said the D word. Yeah, that's the word that we hear it, and all of a sudden we go, ugh. You know, like, anybody in here like discipline? Anybody? Who loves to be disciplined? Who's a masochist, right? Who, who's like, nobody, right? I mean, nobody likes being disciplined, but here's the thing. We need to redeem discipline this morning. Because... Uh, not particularly because I like discipline. Um, on the contrary, in fact, I want to run from it. It's not that fun. Uh, but I want to redeem it this morning because without it, we will never be the kind of loving and alternative community that Jesus is creating in the world. Um, discipline, you guys, if you didn't know, it's an act of love. It's an act of love. Um, I'm not sure if this is on the screen. I can't remember. But um, Hebrews chapter 12 describes this. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a child of God, it says that the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son that he receives. That's what we're told, that God loves you, and sometimes that means that you'll be disciplined by him. And, that, and when we talk about discipline, we're actually talking about love. Uh, my mom uh, reminded me even this week uh, where, of a story where I was nine years old, and I went, uh, I went with her, as I often always did, uh, to county market to go grocery shopping as a nine-year-old. And one day, for whatever reason, I saw this toy gun that I really wanted. Okay, this is not a nice toy gun. I didn't go to Toys R Us, right? This is a grocery store gun, okay? So this is a cheap old gun. I didn't have any money, right? I was nine. I don't have money. I'm nine. And I said, Mom, I'd love to have that toy gun. And my mom uh, said, no, you can't have that. But I really wanted it. And so I took it. I took this toy gun. I stole it, right? My mom didn't know this. We get home. 20-minute drive home from there. We get home. My mom sees the gun. She goes, Josh, where did you get that gun? And I just, you know, fudged my words for a little while. And then I finally confessed that I had taken the gun. And my mom uh, was a pretty good mom because my mom didn't say uh, to me, um, she didn't say to me, you know, well, Josh, never do that again. And she didn't say to me, well, whatever, it's just a cheap gun. She said, Josh, get in the car, you know, get in the car. We're going. And we drove all the way back another 20 minutes, another 40 minutes round trip to the grocery store. And I remember having to walk in and, and give this gun back to an employee and apologize to this person that I had stolen this gun. Right? And so even as a nine-year-old, that was a really formative experience for me. And I would, we would say this, like, do you think my mom was being a good mom? You think so? I think she was. I didn't feel like, I thought she was a jerk at the time, right? But I didn't, I didn't. 
but she was, right? I mean, we would all say, like, you're being a good mother when you do something like that. Would you say that my mom was loving me? Yeah, totally, right? She was loving me because she had a bigger picture in mind. She had a vision for the kind of man that she wanted me to grow up and be, a man who had some character, right? A man who um, actually realized that if you take something from someone, it affects them, right? It harms another person, things like that. And so I look at a, a situation like my mom, and I see that discipline actually is an act of love when it's done right, when it's done right. It's always an act of love. And so Paul goes, in fact, as far in this passage as to say that the church that actually takes sin seriously in this way is, in fact, being a sincere and truthful church. It's what he says in verse 8, that, that it's able to actually truly live a life of celebration, living a life of celebration. So here's kind of the, the big idea, the roadmap for our time together. In chapter 5, you guys, we see that a sincere and truthful and loving church takes sin seriously out of love for the individual, out of love for the church, out of love for the watching world, and ultimately, I hope you see, out of love for Jesus, out of love for Jesus. So the first thing we see is that a sincere church takes sin seriously out of love for the individual. Uh, look with me again in verse 1. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, among people who aren't Christians. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and by, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul starts out and he says, it is reported, meaning it's not a secret. It's pretty well known around town. Right, that there is sexual immorality happening among you, and uh, it's going on in this sort of comfortable, uh, we're fine with it, it's a pretty good thing kind of way, like an unrepentant kind of way. And the sexual immorality that's being tolerated, he says, is not even tolerated by people who don't know and follow Jesus. They think it's gross. But people in the church are like, no, we're proud of it somehow. Right, and so um, this will be on the screen. This is actually really informative because the people that the church was living amongst was a Greco-Roman society. And in Greco-Roman society, they had this like saying about what, how their view of sexuality was. And uh, this is going to be on the screen. It says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. It's pretty messed up, right? Like hopefully we hear something like that. And we're like, that's the slogan of the day. For people who aren't Christians, like, this is how they viewed each other and how you, you would, you know, practice sexuality, basically, with people. And so the people who are buying into the slogan like this are looking at what's happening in the church and are like, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's messed up. Right? What's the report? It says some guy has his father's wife. Right? This doesn't mean his mom or else it would have said so, but rather it means his mother-in-law. So this phrase is in the present tense, meaning that he wasn't like a one-time thing, but he's in a relationship with his mother-in-law in this like ongoing, I'm comfortable with this kind of relationship sort of way. And, and he says, not even more so, 
that you're just tolerating it, you're proud of it. You're proud of it. And the watching world thinks it's gross, and people in the church are just, like, super proud about it. And he says, you shouldn't be arrogant about this. He, didn't, he says that in verse 2. He says, you should be mourning. You should be mourning, which is actually the word used in the Bible that often and always speaks about people who just experience the death of a loved one. Basically, when you go to a funeral, that, that feeling you have at a funeral, he's like, you should have that sort of emotion you should have that sort of grief when it comes to this exact situation. You see, in the church, you guys, we are uh, connected as family. We're connected as family. Uh, we aren't merely individuals seeking to use each other for our own benefit. That's not what it means to be a church. The church is a family. And so uh, when there's a person with this ongoing sort of like comfy, willful sin in their life, He's saying that should bother you. That should bother you. It should affect you. It, you sh it shouldn't be something that you, you look at and you go, well, that's their problem. He said, no, it should bother you. It's like if I were to go up to you this morning and I would just say to you, you know, you know how are you doing? How are you doing? And you're like, well, not good. My mom's really sick. My mom and dad are kind of going through this ugly divorce. I would never stop you and go, no, 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 I didn't ask how your mom's doing. I asked how you're doing. Like, I would never do that to you, right, because we get it. Something happens in your family. There's a conflict in your family. Someone's, like, destroying their life in some way. It affects you, right, because that's family. You connect yourself to that other person. The church is the same way, right? It's a family affair. It should bother you. So Paul says sin is serious, and it needs to be dealt with. Well, how does this need to be handled? In other words, what, is, what does discipline look like, right? Loving discipline. It says your response should be sadness and grief, and your action should be to remove this person from among you. That's what he says there in verse, uh, in verse 2. And then he follows this up in verses 3 through 5 by saying what they should actually do. He says, so when the church is gathered in the name of Jesus, remove them. He parallels this plea uh, to them in verse 2 with verse 5 when he says, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Whoa, right? You may read verse 5 and you're like, yeah, totally. No, you read verse 5 and you're like, whoa, that's intense. Like, we don't talk very much like that. Like, if I heard you say, yeah, deliver that person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, we go, wow, you like this way too much, right? Like, we would just think you're going a little over the top. Like, you like discipline, like, a lot. So, but, that, but this is what it says. So what does it mean? What does it mean to remove someone, deliver them over to Satan? What does that mean? Well, it means to remove somebody from the benefits of the life of the church where the spirit of God is present. It, it's to say, I, I'm sorry, but for your sake and your benefit, we need to remove you from experiencing the life of the spirit because you're, you're being damaging to the whole and it's not good for you. It's just not good for you. And so to deliver them over to Satan basically is saying remove them outside of the fellowship of the church. Because in the Bible, Jesus is king over all, right? But right now, if you're not a part of the church, if you're not a part of the body of Christ where Jesus is really your king, then you're a part of the world. So the Bible would talk about that. And the Bible says that Satan is the ruler of the world. And one day his rule will come to a final end when Jesus returns. And so to say deliver him to Satan is basically to say put him out of the church into the world. Because hopefully when that happens, 
he will be saved, right? That's what it means. And that's the big question that you can't miss when you read that. You can't miss this. Why should the church take sin seriously in these five verses? What's the motivation? What does it say? Verse 5. It's for the sake of the person. It's for the sake of the individual who's caught up in their sin and yet claiming the name of Jesus over their life. You do it out of love for the person. It's for their hope. Verse 5 says for their salvation. That's why you do it. It's not because you're tired of them. It's not because you dislike them or don't love them or hate them or you're just a mean person. It's because you love them. This, this whole thing is done because you care about the person's eternal future. See, the implication is that if you don't care enough about someone's blatant, sort of like comfy sin that's destroying them, and, and you don't care about it under the guise, I guess, of being sophisticated or because you feel like you're like, why, you know, I don't want to judge anybody or like, who am I, that sort of idea, right, because you want to be sweet or whatever it is, you're actually loving them, quote unquote, into an eternity separated from God, is what you're saying, because they're running from him. And you're saying, yeah, keep going. I don't care enough about you to go after you. See, removal is the last resort, but it's an act of love. It's redemptive. Um, when I was in elementary school, uh, when I was in elementary school, um, I grew up in this place where my parents, we had like an acre lot, basically in this very awesome front yard, which growing up in Montana was a place you could play in just like it was heaven, any season of the year. It's a huge yard. And, uh, but we lived right up against this highway where people would go 55 miles an hour, probably way faster than that. It was the speed limit down this highway. And so my parents would say, you cannot go on the other side of the fence where the highway is. People are just cruising on by. And our fence is not like a protective fence. It's like a decorative one. There's like two wooden beams with a huge gap in between. So to get through the fence was super easy, right, even as a kid. So they'd say, you cannot go to the other side of the fence, you can't play in the irrigation ditch, and you definitely cannot play on the highway, Josh. You can't do that, okay? Well, I know for a fact that I didn't listen to that at different times. I never went as far as to say, I want to go play on the highway, right? But let's just say that I did. Let's just say I wanted to go play on the highway, and my parents catch me out there on the highway, dodging cars and stuff like that. Um, just trying to, you know, train for something. I don't know what I'm training for, but I'm doing something out there. I'm having a great old time. And my parents see me. This is what would have happened. Every time that I went on the irrigation side of the, of the fence, they would say, you need to come inside, and you cannot play outside for a week. We are going to remove you from the benefits of playing in this amazing yard for an entire week. Why? It was for my good. It was for because they loved me. Because what would happen when that, when that happened? I would have to sit inside all week and look out and see my friends or my sisters playing in the yard. And I would have to think about all the benefits of that yard and how amazing of a blessing and a privilege it is to actually play in that yard. But I would also have to sit in the house and think about the damage and the devastation that could come to my life if I refused to listen to my mom and dad. If I want to go play on the highway, it was good for me to think about what could happen to me, what would ultimately happen. Right, in, a, in, a, in a way that maybe is understanding for all of us. Uh, prison in our society is meant to kind of function in this way. What you do is you're removing someone from the benefits of society so that in a sense they see what it is that they miss out on and all the privileges that we have in life when we function well in society. 
but also it's hopefully a time where people can see the grievousness of their wrongdoings so that hopefully one day if they enter back into society, they realize what a privilege it is and how they don't want to live that way again. It's kind of the overall idea of, of prison. Right, this seems, honestly, guys, this idea of removing someone because you love them, this is super hard for us. It really is. Like, you don't, you don't have a category like this very much. And I think it's hard because our faith is the one area in our lives where we are not comfortable or accepting of being in and being put out of. Our faith to us is very individualized. But it, it's personal to us, and it is personal. But when it comes to Jesus, it's not a private faith. It's a communal faith, even though it's personal. See, our perception of the Christian life is that I declare myself a Christian. I declare myself in, and no one can tell me I'm out. See, we think we're always in, but the fact of the matter is, is that there is an implied reality in the New Testament that you have to first enter into the family of God, and that happens through our profession of faith when we're baptized, but you can also be removed. See, I'll be real, this isn't comfortable, honestly, to talk about. This isn't definitely not my hobby horse, and it may be uncomfortable for you, but just think about it. Think about it for a second. Everything else in life has a way in and a way out, and you embrace that, and you think it's good. If you want to be a student at Oregon State, you have to get in, right? You don't just get to walk on and go, I'm here, guys. They're like, no, you're not a student here, you know? Um, if you don't meet certain uh, guidelines, whether it's behavioral conduct stuff or your grades, like, you get removed from Oregon State, don't you? Right? If you want to be a part of a gym, you have to pay certain fees, you have to do certain things, and you can be removed for different things if you don't abide by the rules or something like that. Right, if you want to be on a, on a team, especially like an athletic team, you have to make the team. And you have to get, you can be kicked out, right? <laughs> that was me, right? You get kicked off. Sorry, you're not good anymore, right? <laughs> right if, you wanna, if you want a job, you got to be hired. You can also be fired. If we want to meet at the Majestic, there was a process we had to go through to do that. I'm sure we could also be removed, though. If, if you, if you um, want to be a citizen of a country or get a visa somewhere, you have to go through certain things to, be, to get that. But you can also be removed from a country. If you want to be married, you got to find a spouse, right, first. But then you got to, like, make that vow, that commitment to them. And you can leave that marriage, right? And sadly, that happens way too often, even against some people's own will. As I could honestly go on and on. Everything in life has an in, and everything in life has an out, and you embrace that. You absolutely embrace that. But when it comes to our faith, we say, nuh-uh, not at all. No one tells me I'm in or out. I tell myself when I'm in or out. But the community of Jesus, guys, it is a community that you are brought into by a profession of faith and people witness that baptism and they say, we affirm your faith. And if even me, right, even me, I'm no different than any of you. If I'm living in such a way where I'm really comfortable with my sin and I'm just embracing it and someone lovingly confronts me about it and you go, you know what? And I go, sorry, I just, I don't want to do that. I'm going to live how I want to live. Right? For all intent purposes at that point, I'm not living as if I am a Christian. I'm not showing any signs that I'm a Christian. And so as the last resort, 
someone would need to come to me and say, you're not listening to Jesus. You're way too comfortable with your sin. And so removal becomes an act of love, and the aim of it is redemption. Do you have this category that sometimes love removes, that love does the hard thing? Uh, Church discipline is something that's done when done in the way of Jesus out of love to the individual, and it's always redemption-focused, always. But secondly, we see um, that a sincere church takes sin seriously out of love to the church. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. It's like the most underwhelming statement ever. This is not good. Uh, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul kind of gives this basis for why they should even act this way, and he roots it in Exodus chapter 13, which is the story of God rescuing Israel out of Egypt when they were in slavery. They were slaves under the tyranny of Egypt, and God is about to redeem Israel out of Egypt, out of their physical slavery, because Pharaoh was unwilling to let them go free because of the hardness of his heart. And finally, this final plague was promised to come. And it was the plague of the firstborn. You can read about it in Exodus 13. I encourage you to do it. And what was required that everyone would sacrifice a lamb. And they would wipe the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their house. And when they did that, what would happen is uh, they would be spared. And when the angel passed over their house, the firstborn's life would be spared. So one sacrifice for the sake of another, one life for the other. And so before this whole thing was actually going to happen, God already was preparing Israel to remember this great act of redemption that he was about to perform. And in that moment, God created a festival or a feast that would commemorate every year for these people this saving act of God. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so every year during this unleavened bread feast, they were to actually clean, like deep clean, not clean like some of you clean, but deep clean, right? The entire house, like to rid the house of every little drop, every little tiny speck of leaven. Which if you don't know, leaven is essentially like yeast. It ferments in bread and it causes the whole loaf of bread to actually rise. And so they were supposed to have basically crackers like Triscuits. For an entire week. I'm sure it was awful, okay? But nonetheless, this is the picture, the analogy of sin that God was giving to his people. It was this analogy, and its analogy was to show them the effects that sin would have on the entire loaf, that leaven would have. So Paul's basic premise is basically that tolerating ongoing comfy sin is like adding yeast to some dough. It's going to spread to the whole loaf. It's going to affect everybody. If you've ever baked with yeast before, you know that not just one little part of the bread just rises. Everything else is like a cracker. It's not how it works. It spreads, doesn't it? His whole point, sin spreads, you guys. It spreads. This is often why sin is spoken about in scriptures uh, being synonymous with sickness. Sin and sickness are kind of like friends in the Bible. If you read the Bible enough, like you see that. But just think about it. Think about how we treat sickness. Think about how we treat sickness. If you had this enormous fever and cough and you were throwing up and we were supposed to go to dinner and a movie, sorry, dude, we're not hanging out, are we? 
If I saw you and uh, I knew you were sick, even though I'm a hugger, I'm not going to go near you, right? It's not because I don't love you, but I don't want that to spread to me, right? We, we treat sickness this way, don't we? But sin, we're like, oh, that's fine. Sin isn't isolated to an individual, contrary to what we think. But my sin and your sin, guys, it affects all of us. I, I don't make private sins. They always have a public effect, whether people realize it or not. Sin spreads. Just take the leaven seriously and desire to get rid of it. Why? Why should you do this? Just because you don't want it? Why should you do this? Why? It says in verse 7, 4, why should you care about this? Why should you care about sin spreading? Why should you not desire it, not cling to it? Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul says, do you remember him? Do you remember Jesus? It wasn't just an animal that was sacrificed on that great day of redemption from Israel's slavery in Egypt, but the Lamb of God, the divine blood of Jesus was shed and wiped over the doorposts of your soul. On that great day of redemption, when Jesus freed you from your slavery to sin, do you remember that? He takes says, take sin seriously for the sake of the church, because the church, as he argued earlier in this letter, is the temple of God. It's an alternative holy community where the presence of God actually intends to live. Take it seriously because it'll spread to you. You don't want it to spread, but come on, people. Take it seriously because it costs Jesus' life. If sin isn't serious, then why in the world would God send Jesus? his only son, into the world that he made to be rejected by the very people that he came to save to the very point where he gave up his life on a cross. What was the point of that? What was the whole point of that? If Jesus died for sin, but uh, I'm comfy with it, what's the point? Jesus sacrificed so that you could be free. He wanted to free you from sin. Not just the penalty of sin, which all of us want to be freed from, but he came to free you also from the power of sin. And one day the promise is that you'll be freed from the presence of sin forever. If it cost him his life, then come on, man. I'm telling myself this week, come on, Josh. Take sin seriously out of love for the church and definitely, definitely out of love and honor for Jesus. You see, Jesus died... Guys, not just to save you from something, and we focus on that most of the time. But he also died to save us to something, and that's what Paul's getting at. So we have to ask the question this morning of each other, of ourselves, do I really want to be free from sin? Do I really want, do I want that? Uh, there's a piercing quote by uh, St. Ignatius, who is not a modern saint, he's very old and dead. Uh, this will be on the screen he says, it is impossible for a man to be freed from the habit of sin before he hates it. And I go, how true is that in my life? If I like it, I will never be freed from it because I don't want to be freed from it. Augustine, another guy who's not a modern guy, he's very, very old and dead. Uh, he said this, because uh, he was a man who was rescued by Jesus, God redeemed him. And he had extravagant sexual sin in his life. 
and he really struggled with it, and he actually confessed at one point, this will be on the screen, how he even prayed to God to redeem him or free him from his sin. He says, as I prayed to you for the gift of chastity, I'd even pleaded, grant me chastity and self-control, but please not yet. I was afraid that you might hear me immediately and heal me forthwith of the morbid lust which I was more anxious to satisfy than to snuff it out. And I read that and I'm like, that guy's crazy. I go, yeah, I get that. I go, God, please forgive me, like, um, free me from this, but uh, just wait. I don't really want to be free yet. Like, we don't say that out loud, but, man, we say that as Catholics. This is honestly why we need church discipline is this, right? Because we look at Christ's sacrifice and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me from the penalty of sin, but really, I don't want to be free from its power yet. I'm going to keep lingering here. I need reminding, I need perspective that sin is so serious and damaging that Jesus had to die in order for me to be free from it. Please show me, show me, guys, how I'm choosing to walk back into the prison that Jesus freed me from and how I like it too much. I need people to show me that. See, a loving church takes sin seriously out of love for the church so that it won't spread. But we do this because we love Jesus. But also, sin we take sin seriously. A sincere church takes sin seriously out of love for the watching world. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. And then he quotes this Old Testament verse, purge the evil person from within you. So we find out here in verse 9, this is not the first time that Paul's written to them. He's written to them before, and apparently uh, they really misapplied what he was saying. He said, uh, separate from the person who's just living in this comfortable sin and claiming the name of Jesus. And they're like, oh, yeah. And like a lot of religious people do, they go, we're just going to separate from the world, from the people who don't claim the name of Jesus, um, but are living in sin, essentially. Which, come on. I mean, come on, it's basically his point. This goes completely against the, one of the most epic and final prayers of Jesus. Remember this. When Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he's praying, this high priestly prayer, and Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Paul says, you should never separate from the world. In fact, you are sent into the world to actually associate with people in the world and love people in the world, right, who don't claim Jesus. Why? In order to bring hope and healing to those people. What Paul was saying is that the church should be a different place than the world. It should be a completely alternative community in the world. And, and not only is there no dividing line, apparently, of difference between the church in Corinth and the, and the city of Corinth, there's no dividing line. And that seems clear because he uses basically the same list when he describes both groups. But in fact, the church is like even worse 
kind of like loop back to the first two verses where it talks about um, the city looking at the church going, that's disgusting, guys. Like, we don't even do that. His whole point is there should be distinction between the church and the world. There shouldn't be distance. And you're choosing distance, and that's never been the goal. The distance is actually to draw close. That's the closeness of the distance you should have. There should actually be a distinction, though, in Christ's likeness, the way you look more like Jesus, not a distance. What the church is doing is separating. What the heck, right? Paul's point here at the conclusion of this chapter is to challenge them to see clearly and realize whose sin it is that they should actually take seriously. It's not the world's, which we do this a lot. It makes ourselves feel good. You point at other people, you're like, look at all these horrible people, whatever. And he's like, no, 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 take yours seriously. Take yours seriously. He says, why? God judges them, verse 13. You don't. You are called to go and bear witness and hope and healing. You were never called to separate from them. But in fact, we are called to draw near to people. Paul says, though, that we should separate from certain people who are comfy and proud in their sin, who are claiming the name of Jesus. It's not unbelievers, it's believers. He says, know who you should separate from. Because the world is watching, so who should you separate from? Well, Paul gives some examples for us. He's like, oh, who, who should this be? Verse 11, he says, anyone who claims the name of Jesus and they're guilty, not accused, but guilty, of, and he says, sexual morality. It's the first thing he names. And I can just imagine, as we're reading this letter, because they would read it and people would hear the letter. I can just imagine everyone's like, yep, of course, that sicko with his mom-in-law, right? Let's get rid of that guy. You know, that's the category they have right now. And then he goes, yeah, and those guilty of greed. And I imagine there's like a gulp, you know, in the room or something. Idolatry, giving your heart and soul to something other than God. A reviler, which I don't use that word much. It's basically someone who criticizes with their words in an abusive and hostile way. Right? Basically just being mean and overly critical and attacking people. Using your words to do it. He says drunkards. They say you can't drink. He says, but I'm talking about people who just have to hit the bottle all the time in order to have fun, to make it through life. And um, they embrace that reality. They just celebrate it. This is great, you know? And then he says swindlers, which I have never used that word in my life, right? I'm not living in the 1800s. But um, it's just like people who scam other people, right? They take advantage of someone else for their own sake. Uh, so how are we doing? I mean, I read this list this week, and I'm like, I should be put out of the church. Is that what this is saying, right? Shoot. The whole idea is the playing field is now level, isn't it? The scary thing is that oftentimes I myself will be stuck in these types of things, these destructive and hurtful things, and I can't even see the depth of it. You know what this is like, right? When you're stuck in something, you don't even see it. I mean, the most vivid for me is uh, when I was at the bottom, just the last straw that I had in um, my former life of drug abuse, okay? And uh, Jesus dramatically redeemed me out of that. And it's crazy when I look back. I go, wow, I looked like that. I did that. I cared about that. I couldn't even see it clearly enough. Right? If you don't see clearly, the point is this, Paul is saying. We all need loving discipline. 
I need you to judge me. That's the word he uses. But judge here is not just like, look at you, you idiot. That's not like the word judges. To judge means to help me see my sin clearly. We need, like Jesus said, to take the plank out of our own eyes so that we can help others take the sliver out of their eyes. It's not that I would say, well, I have this plank. I should never even help you. It's that, no, that sliver is painful. I still want to help you. Right? We, we, we need this. We need church discipline every day. I get church discipline every day from my kids, from my wife. I mean, they know my flaws better than any of you. And they lovingly, maybe sometimes unlovingly, point them out to me. You know? There's a way to go about this that's really important that you have to, you can't miss this morning. Because a lot of us really love pointing stuff out about each other. But there's a right way of doing it. I could put it to you like this. Um, like, I have, like, this uh, mole on my neck, okay? No one likes moles. And uh, my daughter is one and a half years old. And a month ago, she discovered it. And you know what she did? She, when I carry her, she does it every time. She'll probably do it today, right? She reaches around my neck, and she touches it, and she looks at me in the face and smiles and goes, ew, ew. And we go back and forth, and I'm like, you jerk. Like, why are you just pointing out my flaws? Like, I don't like that either, you know? And she's just pointing out my moles, or she'll point to one on my head or something like that. She's like, ew, you know, she's always pointing it out, just like shaming me. So, and too bad she's a baby. I'm like, there's nothing not cute about you, so I don't know what I'm going to do about it right now. But nonetheless, okay, she points it out just to judge me, ridicule me, and shame me, right? Literally. But if I go to a dermatologist, I go to a dermatologist. A dermatologist doesn't look at my mole or something and go, ew, gross, right? They shouldn't be a dermatologist, should they? No, but they are going to look at it, and they're going to look at it very, they're going to point stuff out to me very differently, out of care, out of concern, hoping that if some, if one of those develops into more of a cancer-looking thing, that, that my life could be even saved. We're supposed to judge each other, help each other see our sin better like a dermatologist, not like a a one-and-a-half-year-old, right? See, we need this all the time. We practice church discipline out of love for the other, the church, and for the sake of the watching world. I think that's why Paul comes back around to the main individual at hand, and his point is this. It's not that the moment someone is greedy, you remove them. It's not the moment that someone gets wasted that you remove them. It's not when someone falls in sexual sin that you just immediately remove them. It's, it's not those people. You could fall a lot. But if you care about your sin, you, don't, you, don't, you want to not want it. That's different. He says it's for the person, though, that's like, no, I love this, and, and I don't even, I don't want to live differently. That person's tuned Jesus out. He says you need to remove them for their benefit that hopefully they might come around and be saved. See, the, the church should be a place of healing, not rejection. It, it should always be that. And if it's not, I don't know what we're doing. But if we never reject the virus of sin, but we embrace it, then the church can actually never be a place of healing, can it? Because all it will simply be is a place where we're like spreading all these diseases and we're like, come on in, you know? That's not a place of healing anymore, is it? Well, what's the whole point? Why do we do this? It's out of love for the watching world, guys. The world is watching, and it's grossed out. The world is, is watching. Is the community of Jesus any different? Is it a place of healing and wholeness, or is it no different? 
Is it no different? I'm kind of up against my time, but I, I really do need to end because this is really important. Because I, I have a fear that even saying something like this today, um, there's going to be some of you that are like, you just feel like stoked to go just start pointing stuff out about people. And um, man, I just, I need to tell you, first of all, if that's you, slow, the point is this, slow down. And really see that the point of chapter 5 is not so much you start going around just pointing everybody else's junk out, but so that you would start seeing your own and saying, help me see mine. But secondly, there's some of you in this room that you're like, no, I'm a really loving, compassionate person. Who am I to ever point anything out? And that's not the call of this passage at all either. You're doing a great job of seeing your brokenness, but you're, you think you're being a good friend, you're actually being a really bad friend because you're not seeing the eternal picture of our lives. And so we can be very damaging when we do this. And so I'm going to give you three practical things that you must assess. It'll be on the screen. This is what I, I think about this all the time. Okay? First one is this. If, if someone is, like, in sin in some way, you must first figure out if they're just ignorant of it. Because they might just be ignorant. They might be a baby Christian to some degree. They might be new to the faith to some regard. And they just don't know. And so you approaching them on something and like just rebuking them or whatever it is, that's not helpful. Some You just need to come alongside them and say, hey, I know you're new to the faith. Just so you know, Jesus, ha- Jesus has a vision for all of your life, not just some of your life, all of your life in every area. And this is what he says about this. It's for, the, for your good and for his glory. And if you live it out in this way, you'll, you'll experience the joy of that. And oftentimes, if a person's a genuine follower, they're going to go, oh, that's really hard and that's really painful, but I want to do that. All you got to do is just teach them. You just got to show them. But sometimes people are really faint-hearted. They, they, they're very aware of their sin. Maybe it's like they, they're always battling with their anger. And you don't need to come alongside of them and tell them once again, that's wrong. They're like, yeah, I know. And I'm really frustrated by it and I'm getting exhausted that I just can't be freed from it. But they also don't need you to just like throw it in their face or rebuke them in some regard. They need you to come alongside of them and encourage them and say, I know it's so hard. I know it's so hard. But, but Christ died for this sin even now here. He forgives you. And you will change. By the grace of God, you will change. Keep, keep going. You, you need to encourage the faint-hearted. Comfort them. And then for the people who are just wayward, that's the person in, in 1 Corinthians 5. Someone's like, I'm living this way, and I just, I don't really care what anybody says about it. It's what I want to do. Even though Jesus says, not this way, but I'm like, I'm fine with it. He says, it's those people that you would want to rebuke or admonish, which means a loving, hard word. You're basically calling them back. You're saying, please come home. Do you remember what it was like to follow Jesus with your whole heart? Do you remember? You call them back. And guys, let me tell you this. If you get these out of order, you'll really hurt people. You can't get these out of order. If you encourage someone who's wayward, that's devastating to them. If you teach someone who's wayward, they already know. If you rebuke someone faint-hearted, that'll destroy them. And if you come admonishing someone who's ignorant, they're going to feel completely judged when they just simply didn't know. 
Discipline is, is something of love, and we need to have these relationships with each other in order to do it right. We have to evaluate a little bit. So guys, Jesus died. Jesus died for sin. To save you from the penalty of it. And the power of it. And one day the presence of it. One day its presence. I pray that we would all be really good dermatologists. To help each other along the way. For the sake of the watching world. Let's all stand and pray. God, you want us to be people who are free, and you want us to be people who are celebrating, who are sincere, who are truthful, and who represent you well. So God, I pray you'd give us hearts that bask and just swim in your grace, that we extend that to each other all the time. But God, that we never are comfortable with our sin to where we're just like, oh, just the way it is. God, you long to continue to free us from it, and I pray our hearts would yearn for that. And so, God, today I just pray that you would uh, minister to our hearts, you would breathe life into us, Lord, that we would be people who love each other well, that um, you would have a softness to our love and appropriately the hardness, the hard side of love, which we often want to avoid. And so we confess to you, God, just I confess to you my sin for how much I just avoid that. It's awkward. But help us to love each other well. May we really love each other well on this day. How would you unify us, Holy Spirit? Would you uh, just cause maybe the seeds of your word that are planted in our lives today to flourish? God, may we not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it. 